You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and today's guest is Mary Vizi. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, CJ. I appreciate you having me today. Absolutely. Now, everyone, if you haven't listened, this is our third uh, podcast in this three-part series. Mary and I have been talking about, in the first two, about clinical research billing. And um, Mary's given us a nice overview in the first episode on clinical research billing, why it's important for compliance professionals to understand, revenue cycle professionals, finance professionals. In the second podcast, we spoke about, uh, we drilled down a little bit more into a very important uh, portion of, of these activities, which is a Medicare coverage analysis. And Mary shared all sorts of great details from how you do it, where you get resources, how you train staff, timeline, all those important things. Um, And in this third podcast, we're going to be specifically talking about leveraging the electronic health record, and we'll call that the EHR, uh, to bill for clinical trials with inpatient stays. So keep in mind that, you know, work can be done in clinical trials. Some of it can be outpatient, some of it can be inpatient. So we're going to focus on that that inpatient stay. And, And just a little bit of background, Mary and I know each other from our, our years of work at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, I was there for a relatively short time. Mary was there for a very long time uh, in charge of uh, clinical research uh, billing. And Mary, I believe you've recently retired and you're, you're teaching and consulting and all those great things, right? Yes, CJ, I retired uh, in March of 2022 after 22 years of service and really enjoyed my time there, but uh, realized that I, I wanted to kind of venture onto the consulting side and the education side of it. Excellent. Well, we're so grateful that you're, you're doing that and you're sticking with this important topic. Um, we'll mention a little bit later a, a boot camp that Mary's doing on this topic. So, And we've mentioned it in the first two podcasts as well. But Mary, let's jump into this topic about kind of the inpatient stay and leveraging the EHR. Before we get too detailed in the billing piece, can you just talk about how clinical research is in, incorporated into an EHR? Yes, absolutely. So Um, The actual electronic health record is really for patient management. Research was kind of just um, almost an afterthought, if you will, by many of the programmers associated with the electronic health record. And so I'll talk about the billing aspects of it and the um, and the treatment pieces of it. So because your treatment plan for a clinical research study has to get incorporated in or should get incorporated into your electronic health record as well. So okay. that way the, the clinicians, the clinical ops teams, um, and the nurses really understand, here's what the study requirements are. Here's the orders that need to occur for this particular patient um, at this particular time. Because for a clinical research study, it is very regimented as it, right. as it relates to the treatment for that patient. Right. And, and it's important to, to recognize, I think this is partly what you're saying, that, you know, when you're doing research, you're trying to confirm things like safety and efficacy. So you, you may be doing tests and services that are a little bit um, more rigorous or a little bit, 
you know, greater than what you would normally do to just treat that disease. And so um, I think that's part of what you're, you're probably talking about there. That is correct. So you're doing things to really monitor the safety of the patient. So you may know that a certain class of drugs causes cardiac problems for the patients, for some of the patients, and you see that as predominantly happening in, say, a certain age range of patients. You want to make sure that you are actually performing certain safety tests and and making sure everybody knows that that particular patient is on a clinical trial. So oftentimes, um, your electronic health record will have a pink banner or a banner to to uh, associate that patient with a particular trial. Yeah, and I think that's probably important because you want whoever's utilizing the medical record to be relatively uh, alerted relatively soon as they access that patient record that, oh, there's something unique about this patient. Uh, they're on a trial of some sort. And I guess at some institutions like Anderson, that probably pops up a lot because a lot of patients are involved in trials, right? That is correct. About 30% of the patient population um, at Anderson was on a clinical trial um, during my tenure. And so you really want to make sure that the patient, that uh, everyone is informed that the patient's on a trial. And so especially like the clinical operations people who may be ordering tested procedures, they want to, you want to ensure that they understand, here's what is already required for the study. And so if you want to do, say, an EKG, but you may already have to have an EKG for the study, so why order another one? Or the big thing that we had around that, uh, CJ, and I don't want to get into the weeds about this one, was really the the ability to, you know, pull um, blood from a patient and actually do all those blood draws. And so you wanted to minimize the number of sticks you did to a patient. So really having folks understand that this patient was coming in for a lab Anyway, why don't we just leverage that lab time to do uh, the other testing we're looking at? So that, you know, really helps to have more cohesive treatment plans for the patient and having everyone be on the same page as it relates to what is needed for that patient. Yeah, that's great insight. You know, I'm kind of curious, you you may or may not have insights here, so feel free to say either way, but um, EHRs, there's varied EHRs, right? And some EHRs are really good maybe for a hospital setting versus like long-term care in a nursing home and some may not cater to certain aspects of, of healthcare. Have you found um, that there's a lot of good EHR options? Do most institutions kind of create their own when it comes to clinical research? Um, or do you, do you find that there's some good options out there to, to ad- adopt, you know, maybe an off-the-shelf EHR? What are your thoughts in general about I think for a hospital setting, there are um, some really good EHRs out there that actually have a research module or uh, the ability to recognize that this patient's on a research study. And so those, those in, especially in, in this day and age with the cutting edge technology that's out there. So a lot of the major electronic health records do have that research module. So that's very helpful for health systems. When it comes to provider settings, I, you know, I have, don't have a lot of relevant experience. I have more anecdotal experience with it. And it, they do have those, those particular types of, um, systems. And I am not quite sure how effective they are. You know, I know that they can track that this, this patient's participating in a clinical trial, but I'm not sure about the effectiveness of that. Gotcha. Just something for our listeners to be aware of, because as you're looking at EHRs, you know, you, you may just want to have as many people involved in the initial process of deciding what features you need, because, you know, if you work at an institution like, like Mary had, 
where a large percentage of patients are on research trials, you know, and you're maybe looking at a new EHR, make sure you're asking questions about all these features to find out and say, hey, can you show us what what you do for research, um, if that's a piece of your work and portfolio. Um, So Mary, maybe we can jump now a little bit more now to some of the challenges with clinical research billing that you might find in an EHR. Any thoughts on that? Yes. So, of course, um, communication and ensuring that everyone knows that this patient's on a trial. So how does that happen? It just it doesn't happen automatically. So right. that clinical trials management system or that CTMS that manages the study should be integrated with your electronic health record. And when I mean, when I say integrated, it should be communicating with the, ele- with the electronic health record to provide study demographic information, such as the actual study number. So every study is given a number by the by your institutional review board. So you want to make sure that that number is coming over into the electronic health record from your CTMS. You want to know the name of the study, the PI, the department, what disease are we studying here? Um, and also, so that basic study demographic and also the date that the IRB approved it, because you don't want to be putting a patient on study that the IRB has not approved. Right. So all that pertinent information is really key there. And then once that information is done and the IRB um, has approved it, you, you want to ensure that you have your coverage analysis that has actually been converted to a billing grid within the electronic health record, because that billing grid is going to tell your, your electronic health record charge router where to route the charge. Is it something that I need to send is related to the study billable to my patient or my patient's insurance? Or is it related to the study billable to my sponsor? And so I should put that in a side bucket and send that over to the study sponsor as opposed to the patient or the patient's insurance. So those type of things is, is really helpful for the billing department to understand that differentiation. So that Medicare coverage analysis we talked about in um, our second series is really the foundation of that billing um, compliance aspects when it comes to the revenue cycle for a clinical research study. So Mary, you know, I've worked a lot in in revenue cycle and kind of billing compliance and those sorts of things. And frequently you get denials and and payers or auditors might want certain things from the medical record. And I'm just curious, in in the prior podcast, we talked a little bit about working denials, uh, maybe from a commercial payer or Medicare. And with the electronic health record topic we're talking about now, are there certain things to include when you're trying to fight you know, work through denials or payer requests, like, is it appropriate to even include the protocol or is that outside of the scope? What do you include? What don't you include? Are there tips or things to be aware of? That's a very good question because we did run into this challenge um, when it, we were working with denials um, for some of our clinical research participants. And so we consulted, of course, with our compliance department when insurance was requesting a copy of, say, the study protocol. And so we determined as an organization that that was way, that was way too much information. And so we would um, we could give them with the patient's consent, of course, give them the, the consent form. But we also thought that that was probably a little bit more information as well. So we decided that the, the actual medical documentation was going to be sufficient to send to insurance. And so what we would do is really work with those providers to ensure that they were not wording the rationale for the ordering of the test or procedure to, um, 
to say that it was based on study requirements. We really wanted to focus on that medical necessity and why we were medically treating the patient with these tests and procedures and what's the medical benefit there. So try to get them to refrain from saying per study number X, we're going to do, we're doing this procedure. No, we were doing this procedure to take care of the patient's issue, whatever, whatever the case was that they presented with and, or whatever disease that that patient had. So really focusing on that, we, gotcha. to help them really focus on that. Sometimes we would give them for the ones that were really study requirements. And we knew that the, the sponsor was covering that particular patient's visit. We gave them actual templates. So that way it was standardized. It said this patient's coming in for cycle one, day five of this particular study. Here's what they had done. And we would send that information, of course, over to the sponsor because we knew the sponsor was covering that. But gotcha. when we knew that that particular visit was for medical necessity purposes or what uh, was a, a really a routine care visit, we actually put that, um, we actually told them to just use your standard language as though the patient's not on study and focus on that medical necessity of why you're treating the patient with these particular test or procedures. That makes sense. You know, and you know, when you were describing that, another thought came to my mind was, so a lot of us are used to the regular claims development process and submitting claims to payers, but you just talked about, you know, submitting certain things that we already know are covered to a sponsor. Is that, how is that done? I mean, it's not done on a claim form, right? Like you would submit to CMS. Are you submitting like an invoice on like a monthly basis when the sponsor has to pay, do they pay like in chunks, you know, over the course of the trial or are they, you know, or do you have to get granular and say, you know, Mrs. Smith had her fourth CT scan, you need to pay us now. Yes. So that's a really good question as well, uh, CJ, because it, when it comes to sponsor billing, there are two types of sponsor billings. There's milestone based billing, meaning that this, this, the organization, the health system and, um, the sponsor have come to an agreement as to how they're going to be paid. And so that particular milestone may be uh, you're going to get paid after every 10th patient is enrolled. You may get um, actually paid after five treatment visits from for this patient. So I depending see. on what that requirement was in that contract that um, we talked about earlier during this podcast, that is kind of how the crux of the milestone payments for the sponsor works. Or you could have the optional procedure invoice where the patient may, the study may have some optional biopsies or some optional CT scans that the sponsor is willing to cover because they want more data from the patient. So they gather more data. And so in that case, that particular one-off or optional procedure, if the patient agreed to do it and it was performed, is set is a separate invoice that would need to be sent over to the sponsor so that you can get paid. And so the, it just really depends on what type of billing you're doing for that. Typically, most 90% of the time, it's going to be a milestone pace bill okay. where those charges that we said, we know that the sponsors agreed to cover is going to kind of move over to your general ledger and be housed in that general ledger until the actual, um, milestone has been met. And once that milestone has been met, the payment is triggered from there. Gotcha. Yeah. And that brings it. So, I mean, this whole sponsor billing probably brings its own, own complexities and intricacies and, and, uh, and workload that a lot of people might not think of. They're like, Oh, the sponsor's paying for it. Okay. Well, there's a lot of work 
to get the sponsor to pay. Like you have to track things and you have to keep records and you have to yes. provide that. They're not just going to pay you when you call them on the phone. <laughs> Correct. Because they their ultimate goal is to gather data so that they can prove the safety and effectiveness of whatever they're studying. And That's so right. is it moving the field of science along is the other piece that the FDA's question is. And so with all that, the sponsor is also requiring you to do forms. And so to your point, CJ, there is a lot of there's a lot of aspects that goes into getting paid from the sponsor, not just the fact that you've treated the patient and you've met that milestone. There's also some data gathering and um, data collection that has to be done in order for the sponsor to remit that payment. Yeah. So interesting. Sorry, that was a little sidetrack. I don't want to get us too <laughs> off too far off the EHR because I, I want to get back to that a little bit and talk about, you know, how can organizations be innovative um, with studies that require inpatient visits and maintain compliance? Maybe you can just give us a little background on inpatient versus outpatient and, and, and in that question. Absolutely. So um, for our, when we actually review the Medicare coverage analysis, what you should be doing is looking to see what the study requirements are. And as you read the study requirements, you're realizing, oh, I can do most of this in an ambulatory setting. But because of the complexity of some of these new novel compounds, especially when we're talking about, say, CAR T-cell in, uh, infusions and really treating those um can uh, the the bloodborne cancers in a very different way? They um, those CAR T cell studies are requiring inpatient stays because they know that the treatment is so toxic to the patient. Because what they're really doing in effect is taking the patient um, almost like to a hollowing them out, so to speak, to a level where the patient cannot be treated, cannot be, um, cannot go home. They actually have right. to be monitored um, in a medical setting in order for them to really be safe. And so that's that safety aspect of it. And so those they're requiring say a three to four inpatient stay. But we all know that sometimes these patients have adverse events. So they may have some un on unexpected consequences of their treatment or just the progression of their disease could impact them during that particular time frame that they're getting treated for that study, uh, on that study actually. And so those complications is part of our issue, right? Because you, the sponsor is saying, okay, my study is gonna require two to three days of inpatient stay. Well, right. when that's when that's actually in the study requirements, 90 percent of the time you're going to ask that sponsor to cover those inpatient stay requirements because you probably won't be you won't meet the medical necessity criteria for putting for admitting that patient. And so since we, we realized that we're like, OK, what do we do with these types of studies? And so we actually began um, a process of looking at putting these patients in an observation status, because that's really what you're doing. Right. Is observing the patient to see, are they, are they having adverse reactions? Can I complete this treatment within this observation window of two to three days and not have to admit them to a hospital setting? So we, we actually pilot that particular process and implemented it right before I retired. And it really helped a lot of our, our inpatient studies um, first of all, move past the budgeting and negotiation process because one of our biggest hangups was the sponsor did not want to be on the hook for the entire inpatient stay. What do I mean by that? Study requirements say two to three days, but the patient was so sick and became so sick during that setting, they were in the hospital for two to three weeks. 
And we all know we can't split bill and inpatient stay. So between right. a sponsor and insurance is either one or the other. So we would tell the sponsor, you're going to have to be on the hook if the patient actually has complications. And of course, that would halt the negotiations. The sponsor didn't want to be on the hook. So this was an innovative way of actually helping our negotiations with our sponsors go a lot smoother when it comes to inpatient stay requirements and really allowing the providers to evaluate, if you will, that patient before they actually fully admitted them into the hospital. So really yeah. just kind of giving that control back to the provider to decide, to assess the patient at the time. And if medical necessity was met at the time, then inpatient state, the inpatient status would happen. But if not, if there wasn't medical necessity, then we could still put them in an observation status and still treat them on that study. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up such an interesting point because technology and science is advancing. And you mentioned the, the CAR-T. Um, for those that aren't familiar, it's capital C, capital A, capital R, and then T for T cells. Uh, these are, as Mary mentioned, are inpatient. And essentially what you're doing is you're taking, pa you're taking patients' T cells from their body. Um, you're, you're inserting genes in the lab. And then, I'm simplifying here, the science is much more complex. And then you, you grow uh, more T cells with these inserted genes to, to, um, to do certain things. And then you put those cells back in. And so, and, and as Mary said, you, you know, you're, the patient really can't go home. They have to be inpatient. Um, they, they have to be protected. And some of these inpatient stays, you know, these are expensive. I mean, we're talking, you can get up to half a million dollars and, and that sort of thing in, in some of these cases. And, and so is that, is that kind of the scenario you're, you're talking about what I just described? Yes. Thank you for putting the science piece into it. And that's exactly what, what would happen. And so one of the cases that comes to mind that um, I had to work on was a particular um, sponsor had a two to three day requirement for um, inpatient stay for of this CAR T cell drug. And the patient really was very, very sick and they wound up being in the hospital six weeks. And unfortunately, wow. this patient passed away um, because of the complication associated with their disease, not necessarily the complication from the actual infusion. It was more of the disease progression right. for them. But the problem was, is that now the study sponsor was on the hook for six weeks and the yes. sponsors that this, the uh, sponsor was refusing to cover and really wanted to do, he, that particular sponsor was going to have a breach of contract. And so we're, we had to do some negotiations with them to not bill the patient um, that information because at the same time, the actual medical documentation spoke about the study drug. So then if you're trying to bill it out to the patient, right. is insurance going to really cover it? And so we didn't really feel that that was fair to the um, to the sponsor to have to cover six weeks. The two right. to three day requirement was sufficient, but we wound up writing off six weeks worth of inpatient uh, stays for that particular patient simply because we didn't want to bill it out to the patient's yes. uh, insurance and take the risk of the, the denial happening. So the, the institution just decided to write it off. And especially since the patient was deceased and, you know, being um, mindful of that, you know, a state that would actually probably get the bills as the patient was deceased was, was something that we also considered as well. Yeah. And so, that, I mean, that drives home this point a little bit more about, you know, you can't um, just say, oh, we're going to, we're going to follow the science and, and break down, you know, all these scientific barriers because you then get scenarios like this and somebody gets left holding the bag. And so, 
to, to what we kind of started this whole series with, we were just talking about being thoughtful in your financial preparations. And we commented that, you know, we're not saying what a doctor can and can't do, but when we're talking that kind of money for one patient, um, if you're not thoughtful and, and, and making sure these things are covered for the worst case scenario, you could have scenarios like that. And um, then that can affect things pretty quickly on what you can and can't do in the future as an organization. Correct. Or you take the risk, because I know some organizations have just decided they were just going to take the risk and send it out the door to the patient's insurance, which, again, we decided we weren't going to do, knowing that some of this um, these treatments really weren't meeting uh, medical necessity requirements because they may be first in human studies. And so how you justify the medical necessity if it's the first time you're actually infusing this particular drug into a patient. Right. And from a societal standpoint, we know we want advances in medicine. Well, the way you get advances in medicine is to do these kind of do this kind of research. So it's, it's kind of like, but no one wants to pay for it. So you can get into these societal debates about who should be paying for the research. And, and, and then you get, you know, uh, financial interests from for-profit companies that are trying, you know, they're doing their best to, to, to develop a new drug or a new device. And they have their reasons for doing what they're doing. It, it just, bec- it can become really an interesting uh, intersection of all these different <laughs> um, perspectives. In, in the broader society of healthcare. That is absolutely correct. And that's kind of, I felt like a traffic uh, cop sometimes trying to direct the traffic with that type of, uh, with the, all those kind of intersections happening and colliding at, at one time, so to speak. And so part of that aspect um, that you spoke about earlier, CJ, about really that beginning that financial process at the beginning and really being thoughtful and, and fiscally responsible all the way through is, is something that I would strongly recommend any organization who's participating in clinical research billing. Yeah. Cause it, it's kind of a sexy idea to think, Oh, we're doing research clinical trials and it sounds awesome and it is awesome. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that, that might not be so, so uh, sexy about it when it comes to bills and those sorts of things. But ho- fortunately there are people like you that are, that are teaching others about those important uh, office procedures that need to be done and not just the, the headlines of, you know, we're doing research in X, Y, and Z, um, which, you know, brings great, you know, acclaim to your institution and, and your reputation. So those are important things for sure. Mary, tell us a little bit about, we're getting a little bit close to the end of our time on this last podcast. I know you're doing some boot camps um, to kind of further your efforts to educate people. Tell us a little bit about those. Yes, it's a three-day boot camp um, sponsored through the University of Houston's Executive Development uh, Department. It's really a, a branch of their master's degree programs, and, and it's a c- certificate-bearing course, but these camps are designed to really focus on the financial management of clinical research. So they're, they're going to be in-person as well as um, virtual and so that way we can get kind of get to the masses of individuals that really need this type of training. Or we're going to, you know, you can be an individual who just really wants to be, have a career in clinical research finance and you don't know where to start. These boot camps are really help, helpful and designed for that particular purpose. They are going to be offered beginning in September of 2022. And we have, we've kind of mapped out a, a time frame for each of these classes to occur at least once or twice a month over the next uh, year. That's exciting. Yeah, it's gonna. I'm really excited about the opportunity and looking forward to really helping train um, individuals in the financial management realm. 
Well, excellent, Mary. This has been wonderful. Um, any last minute thoughts? We're wrapping up, you know, our third episode, podcast episode, and we've talked about, just to kind of summarize a little bit, we talked about clinical research billing, an overview. In the second podcast, we talked about Medicare coverage analysis. And on this one, we talked about electronic health records, inpatient considerations. Um, anything else that we didn't cover that I know we could talk, we could probably do a 20-part series if we wanted. But what other big topics or last-minute thoughts that you might have for this series? So last-minute thoughts I, I would I would share with the audience is not it's not a one-size-fits-all. Every study is different. So really dive into your study requirements, understand those study requirements, and then begin to put them into financial management tools and, and translate them into financial management is really the, the key there. But really understanding your study requirements and not assuming simply because this is the same class of drugs that can treat the study the exact same. That's not the case because it could be in a different disease you're looking at, but it also could be um, different frequencies uh, that you're performing tests and procedures. So we really want to hone in on those study requirements and not treat all studies the same is one of the big recommendations I would provide to this audience. And then the other one is communication. I know I've said it at the end of podcast one and two, and I'm going to say it again. Communication is so key here, making sure that your PI, your principal investigator and your study team, as well as the finance team that's going to be working with you, the clinical ops teams and the revenue cycle team understand that this patient's on a clinical trial and understand the requirements that are there. So really that communication is really key to make sure that you have a, co a compliant billing program. Yeah. And you've made that point in each podcast, as you just mentioned, and, and I just, it's, you can't overemphasize it because miscommunication can just lead to, to bad stuff happening. Uh, you know, uh, ruined relationships with, that you've worked so hard to try to develop. Um, so you, you work for years to, you know, make this process smooth and, and a few miscommunications can kind of erode trust. Um, and so you just can't overemphasize that. So I appreciate you making that point. Agreed. And when you said erode trust, you have to also think about the patient's trust in, in, faith, yeah. in your organization, as well as your investigative organization as well. So you want to make sure that you're not only communicating effectively with these guys, but the patient as well, because at the end of the day, you can't do clinical research without the patient. So you really want to make sure that that patient satisfaction remains high and that patient quality is, is also high. That's right. You know, and it's not always easy to recruit patients into studies. You know, people here, you know, they're, they're dealing with a potentially life-threatening disease. And now you want me to be a guinea pig in your trial. You know, that's what they think. I know it's not what that, that's not what it is. Um, but you know, a lay person hears research. What do you mean? You want to put me in the trial? I don't want to be, you know, so that trust for the patient is so important that you just said. Yes, absolutely. Well, Mary, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise over the course of this, this uh, three podcast series. Look forward to um, your exciting work and your boot camps, And um, maybe we will find some opportunities to have you back at some point. Thank you so much, CJ. I appreciate the opportunity to share a part of my knowledge with this, with this audience and look forward to any other opportunities that may come. Excellent. Thanks, everybody, for, for listening. This concludes our three-part series on clinical research and clinical research billing. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, 
we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthcity.com.